Welcome back to Careers Explained. This week, I talked to Dr. Kristen Shaka, who's the Associate Program Director of the Department of Internal Medicine Residency at Maine Medical Center, and who is also an Assistant Professor at Tufts University Medical School. Before we get into your current role, can you give us background on your education? Yes, I graduated from um, Cornell University in 1991. I took a few years off and wanted to try a different part of the country because I also grown up in upstate New York. So I went to the University of New Mexico uh, in Albuquerque for medical school, um, which was great. Um, it was a public school, so it was affordable. I was paying for medical school myself, so that was important. But the Southwest is very different from the Northeast, and um, I wanted a smaller place. I had an 18-month-old at the time, and so I wanted a place where I felt like he could play and be happy by the beach and safe. And so I came to Maine Medical Center in 2000 and did my residency in internal medicine. I did a chief medicine year, and I've kind of been here ever since. And so going to medical school, I don't think many people, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I don't hear many stories of someone having an 18 month old while they're in medical school <laughs> usually. So can you describe sort of your experience with that, which sounds pretty unique? Oh my God. Yeah. So that was, um, that was, um, a little bit surprising, uh, Ben's dad and I knew that we wanted to have kids, but we didn't expect to be quite so successful so soon. So that was a <laughs> bit of a surprise to us. And that was really hard. And it was really interesting. I, I always thought I would be the kind of mom that would work full time and um, somebody else would take care of my child. And it was actually pretty uh, fortuitous that he was born when he was because it really changed my perspective on work-life balance quite a lot. Can you talk about that? Because also you're part-time, <laughs> right? I am part-time. So I really was like, okay, I'm going to be an oncologist. I'm going to be this, you know, person that works 60, 80 hours a week. I'm going to be this vital change in people's lives. There are people, you know, who have a cancer diagnosis. They need somebody that's there all the time. And you know, you come in and you help them out and you make them feel better, you know, physically, emotionally, but you really have to, um, I feel like in that job, especially maybe not have a lot else going on outside of work. And I had my son, Benjamin, and I was like, well, I didn't think this was going to be how I felt about being a mom. So it really kind of changed my whole perspective of, about that. And, I didn't want to hand him off to a nanny or his dad or anybody else. I wanted to be there for a lot of his uh, big events, which would have been hard in that role. So I kind of switched career gears before I even started and, um, and made some choices based on becoming a parent. And going back to before medical school, you're in undergrad at Cornell. How did you yep. know that you wanted to do that as your <laughs> I did not know that I wanted to do that. I thought I might want to do that. I had an idea that I might want to do that, but I was not entirely convinced. It is a lot of school, a lot of time, a lot of money. And I was not somebody that came from any money. When I graduated from college, which my parents paid for, because I went to the state part of Cornell, which was cheaper. I was on my own. Nobody was going to pay for anything for me. And so 
to think about the debt that you need to incur to go to medical school. And even University of New Mexico, when I went there, was $6,000 a year, which is unbelievably cheap. But by the time you pay for your living expenses, including your small child, yeah, I, I graduated with probably $170,000 debt, which is nothing compared to what most people um, graduate with. So when I was an undergrad, I really had to be cognizant of any future education was on me to pay for. And so that, you know, honestly makes you think twice about what you're going to do and how you're going to handle that. So I was a bio major and for any bio majors out there, it is a good pre-med degree, but there's not a ton else you can do with it. When you graduate, you end up taking all these really hard classes that are graded on a C curve. So your GPA is not perfect. And you spent all this time in lab. And if you don't go to medical school, you know, unless you're doing field research or something like that, because I was not a biochem major, I was not a molecular bio major, I was a bio major, there were not a ton of options for me that didn't include more school. So I did not love the lab. The lab was not good for me. I'm much more of a people person. So I kind of um, liked science a lot. I like interacting with people a lot. And so I had an idea that maybe medical school would work out for me, but I was no, by no means sure because it is such a commitment and an expense, quite frankly. Well, so even though you weren't sure, you did go. So what was the factor? Well, uh, I think um, I, so I left college and I went to New Mexico to try something new. And I actually, this is a podcast about career paths, but this was a little odd, right? So I went to New Mexico. I know that they had a really good um, medical school and I did have relative out there. So this was always in the back of my mind. But again, I was not at all sure that this is what I was going to do. So I worked in a lab at the VA. Oh my gosh. Do you know the lab I worked on was a prion disease lab, which is like Jakob Kreutzfeld, which is, you know, universally fatal within six months. And so I worked in a lab where you were dealing with prions, which nobody really understood stands. So that was really scary. I was always terrified that I was going to uh, die of some sort of while I was working there. Yeah, it was terrifying. <laughs> um, so I worked there half time and I worked at a um, vegetarian restaurant the other half the rest of the time. I know. That's a life endangering job with a nice chill vegetarian. Yep. So I'm um, trying to figure that out. And then I got a job actually working in the mountains in New Mexico doing wildlife rescue. Um, education work, which is actually a job you can do with a biology degree. And I worked with kids and I worked with animals and I got to work in the mountains and I got to be outside a lot. And that was actually awesome. That was great. Um, But I also was making, I think as the project manager, $24,000 a year, which is like not a lot to live on. Like that was a while ago, but it was a real job. But still like that was the kind of uh, money you were making. So that's not necessarily enough to really live like buy a house on or anything like that so um so as I kind of got that job I was applying to medical school just because I was like I don't like working in this lab I can't really see myself working in this vegetarian restaurant forever nothing is really becoming clear to me about what I want to do I had been taking some classes um at University of New Mexico and I was kind of 
doing well in them and I liked them. I was taking more kind of advanced cell and molecular classes. And that's when I was like, you know what? I think I can go back to school. I've taken enough time. I think I can go back to school. I think I can be successful. And, um, and I think when I graduate from medical school, I might be able to support myself as opposed to what I'm doing right now. So that's kind of how that all went. So you decide that you're interested. You take the MCAT, right? I did take the MCAT. Yes. And I then took the MCAT. I, I studied for like a month and like why a month, I mean, like you have to study for that test. Like I studied like 12 hours. A day. I studied a lot for that test. I studied like I mean, most people spend more than a month, but I, when yeah. I mean a month, I mean like I did it like like a full time job for a month, and uh, I did well. I thought it was really funny. I thought I I did um, great in the English and not so well on the chemistry portion, and I got the same and everything. So and I so and I did well. I test well, so that was good. And that was another thing, right? Is like it's like medical school became possible kind of based on that test, right? that's really some people can be the bio major they can do all the work and then they get there and they if you can't pass that test it's game over for that career yes but also, I don't know I think things are changing in terms of testing but back then that was for sure you had to crush the MCAT basically well also for the people I know now studying for it there's a range of taking the summer off to study full-time taking a year off I've heard I know you to cram it in for a month and obviously well, it was a, it was a pretty intense month I will say yeah. that it was not a happy month it was not a fun month it was not a month I would necessarily recommend but um the way my brain works it that worked for me so then you're in medical school yes How did you determine what you wanted to specialize in um you I really liked um, primary care. That's kind of why I went to University of New Mexico. Um, I, I kind of like had this idea about doing primary care. Then I did the cell and molecular coursework at UNM and I was like, oh, I love cancer. That's so interesting. And, and I thought I wanted to be an oncologist. Um, and so that was also on my mind and at UNM, they're really great about having you do, um, patient care really early on. And so I, I worked with an oncologist pretty much from my second year of med medical school on, it was, a, that was like my longitudinal experience and he was lovely. He was great. He was so great with patients and I learned a ton from him. Um, and I think that some of what you have in oncology is the same as what you have in primary care, which is these kind of long-term relationships with people. Um, and that's kind of what really appealed to me about medicine. So um, I thought I wanted to be an oncologist um, because I could have this really kind of meaningful impact on people's lives. And then I had Benjamin and that kind of changed my mind about that. Now, I don't know how many people understand what internal medicine is <laughs> in primary care. So I think internal medicine gets confusing because the, there's the intern word in it. And they're like, oh, when are you going to not be an intern anymore? I'm like, well, I'm not an intern anymore. Actually, I'm like 52 years old. <laughs> I'm no longer an intern. I'm an internist. So internal medicine is a field. Um, it's a three-year residency after medical school. Your first year of being an internal medicine doctor, you're an intern, but you're an intern no matter what residency you do your first year. And so then you graduate 
and you're an internist in internal medicine, basically we're taking care of, you know, adults, usually more chronically ill adults than say somebody in family medicine and family medicine, they take care of kids, they take care of pregnant women, they take care of adults as well. In internal medicine, we tend to take care of sicker, older adults. In, in internal medicine, you can specialize, you can become a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist or a nephrologist or a pulmonary critical care doctor, or you can do primary care, which is what I do. So all those, you can become a sports medicine doctor, you can become a palliative care doctor. There's about a gazillion fellowships you can do, but most fellowships spring from internal medicine, not all, but all of, we call them the medical subspecialties. You need to do a medicine residency first for three years and then do another fellowship for like two years for nephrology or three years for cardiology or something like that. So you're looking at like anywhere from, you know, three to seven years basically for residency and fellowship, depending on what you want to subspecialize in. So, so I would have had to do my three years of internal medicine and then another three-year hemonc fellowship on top of that to become an oncologist and then kind of work part full-time. And so I was kind of like, I think I don't necessarily want to do that and, um, and went into primary care um, because I could have those kind of still those that meaningful relationships with patients long-term, which is kind of what in the, at the end of the day is really the best part of medicine for me. Really. And just to make sure I'm understanding the difference, mm. you're seeing the same chronically ill patients over time because you're checking in with that maintenance care, whereas yes. compare it to some of the other specialties, it's a one-time uh, heart yes. surgery. You see them once and you yes. probably won't see them again. Exactly. Okay. So I'm like, okay, we dealt with your heart surgery. You've got your COPD. You've got your like breast cancer. You're still smoking. You're overweight. Are you exercising? Like you name the medical problem and like all my patients kind of have them. So, and yeah, we get everything. And that's kind of like, that's like the, like the awful part of it and the great part of it all at the same time. It's hard. It's hard work. I wish I only had the heart to deal with. I don't, I've got their kidneys and their brains and their life outside of work, their stress, their depression. I've got it all, but that's also, which makes it really uh, rewarding. So how does that work? Because I imagined you maybe sent them off. You saw, okay, this is what needs to happen. I'm going to delegate to the cardiologist and then to the oncologist, they have this, but how are you doing all of those? What does that look like using a patient example? (sighs) All right. So let's see. So I just saw a patient last week. She wasn't even my patient. (laughs) She was one of the residents' patients. Because really what I do is I do medical education. I work with the residents. And that's like that's like like the dream job of the of of your life, right? Is like you're doing primary care and having these long-term relations with the people. And then you are also dealing with residents who, you know, you have three years with when they're in their twenties and thirties, which is like a as you know, super exciting time of life, things happen, people have kids, people get married, people get divorced, you know, they buy houses, they buy their first house, their parents die, things happen. And so it's like, it's really great. And they teach you things and they tell you what shows to watch and what podcasts to listen to, and they keep you current. Um, And they challenge you, they teach you new things all the time, and you can teach them too. So that is really fun. So I was seeing a resident patient last week. Uh, She had gallbladder, she had gallbladder cancer 
for which she sees a gastroenterologist and an oncologist. She had just been in the hospital because she had been septic. So she had an infection, probably because her gallbladder cancer was, um, her gallbladder cancer was making it so she couldn't, um, this is too technical. So anyway, she had an inflamed gallbladder, probably infected. She was very, very sick. And she came in to see me the next week for kind of her annual visit. So like, that's crazy, right? Like what else do you have to talk about besides you were just in last week with this terrible infection from your gallbladder? But then you have to think about things like, well, you're due for your mammogram, but you have this disease that maybe is going to kill you in three years on a, on a good day. So do we really need to talk about the mammogram right now? You need a flu shot? Yes, you need a flu shot because you are going to live through this year. So there are there, every patient's different. And yeah. so it just depends. So you kind of have to look at the note from the last oncologist visit. You have to look at the note from the last um, hospitalization. You have to look at the note from the last time they saw the gastroenterologist. And just like you say, then you're looking at kind of like all the healthcare maintenance things that they're overdue for or that are coming up and then which ones actually make sense for them to have because just because they're you know 64 year old woman doesn't necessarily mean a mammogram's a great idea if they have other things going on so it's a lot of looking at the medical record a lot of organizing what's going on and seeing them as a whole person too yeah and acknowledging like okay well you have this really bad diagnosis here's your spouse how are you guys doing like are you able to work do you need social work support how are you doing from a mental health standpoint seems like exercise and like a good diet would be the last thing that you need to be talking about with them, but that's not necessarily the case. I don't think so. Um, so there's a lot to talk about in the half hour that you have. <laughs> Which speaking of what does your typical day look like? Well, half it depends on the like- day. It depends on the day. So on a day that I see patients, you know, we usually get a four hour segment to see patients. And so I'll see seven patients in four hours. And then that gives me a half hour to kind of like write notes. But there's the all the labs that you have ordered, there's all the patient calls or all the refills. So there's a not insignificant amount of time um, when you're not in clinic that you're home that you're kind of doing that stuff. Every kind of academic internist or academic physician is going to have a different time. So the way our residency is structured, I have a group of eight residents that are kind of like on my track. And every time they're in doing an ambulatory rotation, which means they're not on the floors, they're not in the ICU, they have their own clinic patients. When they see their clinic patients, they all see them in a two-week time frame. And I precept them which means they go see their patients and they come back and we talk about whether we think it's a good plan or not. And then they go back and talk to their patients and move on when they're in their clinical block. I am there every time they're in clinic. So they, so we know each other really well. And that also is good because I get to know their patients relatively well um, in addition. So there is no typical day, which is great with my little bit of low-key ADHD, which is a joke, but not really a joke, I would go crazy if all I did was see patients every single day, really need to mix it up. So I, I go to meetings, I do curriculum work, I teach medical students, I precept the residents, um, I see patients, and, um, and there you go. Yeah. And I do fun things. Like we have journal club with the residents at night, or we're having women in medicine meetings and, and, you know, I'm head of the wellness committee for the residency. And so 
really kind of being a, a cheerleader for them and advocate for them. Um, and so every day is just, just totally different. That's awesome. You have so many <laughs> things that you can do. It's never boring. It's never the same. That's exactly correct. I have like a total dream job. So nobody moved to Maine and try to take my job because I love my job. <laughs> I think you, you have it pretty set. First mover advantage <laughs> in your court. So rewinding before yeah. you are in the role you are now, talking about yeah. the how you got there, what is the typical interview process like between a fellowship and your role now? Well, I did what's called a chief residency year. So the chief residency year, so you do your three years of residency and then you do a year of being chief resident, which means you're not doing kind of regular residency work. It's a whole year where you're doing kind of curriculum development and you're teaching all the time and you're kind of a liaison between the leadership and the department mm -hmm. and the residents. And so it's a great year to kind of, you don't realize everything that's going on into the hospital until you have a role like that. So that gave me a huge advantage during that chief residency year. And it was really kind of opened my eyes to, oh, there's more than just doing the same thing in the office every single day, right? There are all these different things I can do. And so honestly, since I was working part-time, I would be able to do kind of extra things. Like we developed a simulation program long before we had this fancy sim center that we have right now. And so um, I, you know, went to a couple courses at Mayo Clinic. I developed the simulation program and I implemented it successfully. And so when I went to apply for this associate program director job that I have right now, I could point to things that I had done. I did a big quality improvement project with asthma and the American Board of Internal Medicine, and I could point to that. And so um, if you want to get an academic medical job, you need to kind of have some track records, proven success in implementing successful kind of academic programs previously and smile a lot and be enthusiastic and nice. Those things all help. And it's a lot of saying yes, which is like a young mom. I had the luxury of working part-time. It's, it's harder. I think if I was working full-time because a lot of the stuff that I said yes to, um, I did on my own time, wasn't really kind of funded. And that's, that's all the hard truth of it. And so for someone who is not working part-time, but wants yeah. to follow, what advice would you have for them? Besides the smile, say yes. As much. I would say, um, I would say choose wisely, right? And like put a lot of energy and enthusiasm into, you know, instead of four projects, do one, but do it really, really well. So you can't say no to everything. I think a lot of folks are, are wanting to um, get out right at five and go pick up their kids from daycare and, and they don't have the bandwidth to do anything else. And so if that's the case, what can you do at six o'clock in the morning before, you know, what can you do what that works well for you um, where you can really put your energy and passion in. And because if it's not anything that you like feel passionate about, then you're not just going to do a good job. Right. So it's gotta be something that you, and I say smile and enthusiasm, which what I really mean is something you're passionate about because you want to be doing it. You can't be like, forcing yourself to seem like you're having fun making more widgets got to be a project that you like that you enjoy um and that um you can make successful given the constraints of your kind of like home life as well right customize what you can do with the opportunity yes yes small small successful projects do what Can't you change can, the world what you have 
Yeah. Exactly. You can change the world, but maybe not like your first couple of years out of residence. Piece by piece. Exactly. And I feel do all at once. <laughs> That's exactly right. So then what type of characteristics would you say are important for you or anyone in your type of role to be successful? I think you have to be curious all the time because if you just were not interested in things and didn't want to meet new people and didn't want to learn about new cultures and didn't want to learn about new therapeutics, didn't want to learn about your learners' lives, it would be a pretty boring job. So I think, you know, I just learned so many new things every single day. It's good. It's good to be humble because I've like, don't ever claim to know very much of anything. I think, uh, yeah, I think being curious is the biggest, being curious and enthusiastic, I think is the, um, or would be the two important things. I am honestly not the most, or- organization would help, but that is not, not my strong point, honestly. So I think you have to kind of like lean into your strengths, whatever they are. And I'm an enthusiastic, pretty positive person. And that has brought me a long way in life. And that doesn't have to work for everybody, but you kind of have to figure out what works for you and uh, like lean into that for sure. That's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) What's something you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger, either in med school or even after that? I think that something that is hard for medical students is to ever admit that they're wrong. You know, like you don't want to ask that question because you don't want to make it seem like you don't know, but like nobody expects you to know. And probably your resident doesn't know and probably even your attending doesn't know. Like most of the time there's too much to know and nobody really knows. So you're like terrified that you don't know, but you shouldn't be so scared and you should just ask. If you don't know, like if, if I was taking care of you, wouldn't you want me to ask if I didn't know? Then just pretend yes. that I did know. Just be transparent. I'm not saying like don't study and just say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, like if you really have a question and you've been doing the work, you're probably not the only one that has that question. And don't be afraid to ask it and don't be embarrassed to ask it at all, because probably it's a great question. Definitely. If you've done your homework, you're working hard, then don't psych yourself out. Exactly. Just have a little credit. And final question. Do you have any other advice for people who are interested in following your path? Um, I think that if you want to go into academic medicine, that is a great path. I would um, say um, be prepared to work hard, be prepared to have ideas, be prepared to be able to do something different every day um, and keep an open mind. And I think, I think your generation is way better about work-life balance than like mine was. So I would say, say yes more often than you say no, but not to the point where you're driving yourself completely crazy. You just don't know when an opportunity comes, you have no idea how that's going to turn out. And if it appeals to you at all, I would say, give it a try. Work expands to fill the time. So compress it as much as you can and take as many opportunities as you can. I think that's right, Heidi. I found it to be true. There are limits, but you can you can push it for sure. <laughs> you can try. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. That was all very helpful advice. And I think people can learn a lot from you. I know a lot of people are interested in being doctors. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I'm glad that you're doing this.